If you're a PAC director, it's incumbent on you to make sure that you're not going to make a contribution that's going to be an embarrassment to your organization. to the Facts About PACs. I'm Michaela Isler, NAPAC's Executive Director, and I'm joined for the very first show of the new year by Mr. Adam Belmar. Happy New Year to you, Michaela. I hope you were able to enjoy some family time over the holidays. You know, we did. We had a really nice holiday, uh, wonderful little New Year family celebration. Hope you did as well. Oh, absolutely. And some great food and downtime. I know everybody needed it. Oh, my gosh. The downtime was the, the best gift of all, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, if we're headed for a snowy winter, it hasn't arrived here in Central Virginia. I know. But I did want to make a sort of special mention. This episode, Michaela, of the number one pack podcast in America, episode 140, comes as we begin our fifth calendar year on the air. Well, I will just say this. Never did I ever believe we'd be going into our fifth year and 140 plus episodes. The Facts About PAX podcast still going strong. Nab Pack strong. Absolutely right. And in keeping with that theme, we have a guest with us today, Michaela, who some describe as the wise man of PAX, but we'll just call him friend, Professor Stephen Billet. He is a dear friend, and that is the perfect way to describe him, Adam. Well, the Facts About PAX podcast is produced as ever, especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NABPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting with the PAC community. And today's episode is brought to you by Public Affairs Support Services. PASS has been keeping PACs on track for 38 years, from preparing and filing your FEC and state PAC reports to managing your PAC match program and hosting your PAC website. The employee owners at PASS make your PAC programs and compliance their business. Thanks so much, Adam, and thank you, Pass, our longtime NAPAC member and partner in all the things we do here over at NAPAC. And Adam, a few important NAPAC activities to read out before Professor Stephen Billet from the University of Notre Dame Washington program joins us. We are kicking off the year with our first luncheon next week. I know you're going to be with us here in D.C. Uh, joining us for that event as we bring in our lobbyists to talk about what a crazy year this is probably going to be. 2024 legislatively, we say it every year, but I do think we're going to continue on that path. Well, you can call me what you want, but just don't call me late for a NAPAC lunch. <laughs> I will be there. It's great to see everyone back at NAPAC headquarters uh, right here at the beginning of the year, Michaela. Yeah. And so for all of our listeners, we also in our NAPAC Connect portal, we have several events coming up with our monthly luncheons, our monthly Let's Talk webinars. We have our quarterly roundtables coming up in March. So already hit the ground running, Adam. Joining us now is the OG Pac-Man, <laughs> Steve Billet. <laughs> and welcome back to the Facts About Pac, Steve. Always a pleasure to be with you. Let me congratulate you on uh, your now fifth year, I guess, of your podcast. What a wonderful contribution this makes for people in the Pac world, and in particular, Pac managers. It's just wonderful. I'm really pleased to see that you've taken this on and it's obviously been a great success. Oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, you know, it's been an awesome resource for our members, but uh, the really the community at large. And we have listeners from all over the world. It's been really fun to hear from so many people that come across this podcast and now are, you know, sort of our loyal listeners. 
But Steve, with your PhD in government and international relations from Notre Dame and your years of experience in Washington and around the world with AT&T, what advice do you have for our employee funded and business trade association PAC audience about achieving success in an environment where faith in institutions is fading? Well, that's absolutely the case. And we see it constantly. I mean, we've seen it in the last few weeks where there were attacks on, again, university uh, leadership. Uh, we've seen these ongoing attacks on things like churches and other elements of our society and certainly our institutions of governance. It's important, therefore, that PACs and PAC managers, I think, make particularly strong or take particularly effective efforts at maintaining their effectiveness and making certain that the way they operate is completely above board and as transparent as possible uh, under the circumstances. I just think that under the circumstances, it's exceedingly important. And as we've seen, it doesn't take much for people in the media or people that might be your adversaries otherwise to take off after you uh, for what may seem to be otherwise a meaningless act on your part. You know, it's impossible to deny the erosion of confidence in American institutions. And this is a trend and it impacts all of us. I think you're hinting at something that really resonates with the PAC community and this sort of idea that we have to commit to higher values, right? We need to embrace transparency. Well, well, I certainly believe that that's the case, but I think there's an additional challenge in all of this. And I think that challenge is that PAC management has to get better. PAC managers have to get better. You know, we set out on this journey many years ago, trying to take PAC directors from a place where they were clerks, basically, where they recorded transactions and filed them with the FEC and to move the PAC manager into a more professional posture, a place where they're able to contribute effectively to the government affairs organization. And uh, it certainly involves more than what what I believe we're currently doing and I think compels us to try to be better at what we do. For example, you know, I think too many times we sit back and we take the information we're given from these probabilist organizations and we use that as a substitute for effective analysis that may be valuable to the PAC. What I believe PAC directors need to do is to bore into the information that's available on campaigns, campaign finance, and candidates. You know, avail yourself of the opportunities to do meet and greets. Meet with candidates. Meet with their campaigns. Do evaluations. And God forbid, above all else, do research. Do research on the candidate and the organization. You know, it, it can yield wonderful information for you that would be useful as you decide where you're going to give your money and where you're not. As you uh, determine whether a candidate is going to be good for your organization or not. You know, you think about this. One of the things, I mean, I, I hate to bring up something ugly from recent recent time, but, you know, if you look at someone like George Santos. I mean, everybody said, oh, the media dropped the ball on this. 
Well, I'll tell you who else dropped the ball on this. It was all those people that gave him money, and there were a lot. Nobody, nobody in the campaign contribution world did any research on this guy. You know, if you're a PAC director, it's incumbent on you to make sure that you're not going to make a contribution that's going to be an embarrassment to your organization. I haven't looked at all of Santos's contribution records, but my suspicion is that there are people around there who would surely not like to have their name attached to him. You know, and, and this sort of thing, I believe, is important for PAC directors, that they get out there and do research, that they find additional information. And there are ways to do this. You know, all of these PAC organizations in the business community are generally attached to professional organizations where they're plugged into other people from around the country. It takes nothing to pick up the telephone call and call someone in Sacramento and say, what do you know about these candidates that are running for X seat? What can you tell me about them? You know, do you have any background information on this? This was a, a practice that I think we used to see a lot of over the years. I mean, it was certainly an opportunity that I was able to avail myself of way back when I was working for AT&T. I could pick up the phone and talk to our state lobbyists and say, what do you know about these people that are running for office? You know, can you tell me anything about, are they going to be good for my company? Are, are You know, are they honest? Are they decent people? Or are we going to be ashamed about the contribution to someone like this? So the point is, is that there are research opportunities that are available and there's public information available that in the end elevates the position of the PAC manager, makes you more of a team player, allows you to bring independent information into the government affairs organization that would be really valuable to the decision making. Steve, I think that's uh, such an important point. And I do think that these jobs are getting more and more complex. There's more responsibilities on our plate. Getting out and trying to meet personally with every candidate is difficult and can be daunting. But to your point, we, you know, are often part of other organizations that are really vetting these candidates a little bit more closely and, and at least have met them. And so I think it's kind of timely too, as we think about we're doing a webinar later this month on your budgeting process and how you reevaluate the budget. And I think sometimes it's a bit of an exercise in just getting the numbers on a piece of paper and, and getting it to the lobbyists and approved and out the door. But this is probably a very good time to sit down mid-cycle before we get really into the primaries to go through and say, okay, of these candidates that we're looking to support that maybe we haven't supported just yet in the cycle, where can we gather more intel? Who can we talk to? Can we even bring them in? Maybe we identify 10 that we haven't met in person to come in and meet with us. But I think that's an important point. And just sort of expanding on that a little bit, you know, I'd love your top piece of advice for PAC professionals listening today, just in general. I've always believed that, you know, you can really add some value to the whole of the process. And it should be the goal of a PAC director to do exactly that. I think you, you sort of elevate your role in the organization by doing that. Certainly, as you suggested, you know, as you're going through this budget process, you know, you presumably rate and rank candidates based on their position, based on the extent to which they've supported your agenda. You know, the important thing for the PAC manager is that you bring additional information on those individuals. You know, you can go back. Uh, I mean, if you look at someone who's sitting in the Congress already, you can look at something like 
Project Vote Smart and come up with a pretty good idea of where people are going to be on most of the issues that come to the floor, including those that are, that are going to have an impact on you and your organization. The other thing you can do, and I mean, I, without sort of diving into the muck and mire here, is to go back, especially if there are open seats and multiple candidates involved in a race, and do some background checking on individuals. I mean, I, I was thinking this morning, you know, there was a time when I, I talked to a candidate on the phone and I'd been given a heads up by one of our local lobbyists who said, you know, this guy's had some problems over the years. And one of the things I asked this guy was, are you being sued by anyone just at this point? And it absolutely caught the guy flat-footed because indeed he was being sued by former business partners. And while he was at that point in time, a leading candidate for the party's nomination, it was apparent that this was someone we didn't want to get close to. Yeah, the diligence and the firsthand work pays off. Now, not everyone can do that, even though we want to, which sort of leads me, Steve, towards this idea here in the 2024 cycle of how you, as a professor, as a practitioner, think about the challenges that come from analyzing campaigns, because there are examples out there, one that you made me aware of, of people who are taking a look at some different variables and having some, well, relative predictive success. Talk about that for a minute. Well, I, as we discussed uh, last week when we were talking about this, there's a 24-year-old student at Virginia Tech named Charles Nuttycomb who called every race in the Virginia legislative contest. He's actually focused most of his efforts on, or I guess nearly all of his efforts, on state legislative races. And he has a 95% hit rate on that. Now, that's pretty good. That's a lot better than 538 does. It's a lot better than most of the other pollsters and probabilists do. The question is, what does he do? And obviously, he doesn't reveal all of the components in his formula. But what it says is that, you know, here's a 24-year-old guy, obviously pretty smart. But you know what? Our PAC directors are pretty smart, too, and they're around the political world, and many of them are in a position to bring information to bear, I think, that would be useful to their organization and that they can use to make some better decisions for the group, for the organization. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to talk to Charles Nuttycomb about this a little bit further. He's obviously something of a savant at this point. But uh, he clearly has some ideas about how this is done. I get the impression at the same time, I mean, when you when you look at the news article on this, it looks as though he really focuses on some very basic stuff. Who's got money, who has a well-organized campaign, and some other data that really, I think, puts someone in a position to maybe make a better guess than we're seeing in many other places. Adam, I'm uh, seeing a future guest on the episode, potentially. Yeah, I have to say, I wasn't aware of Charles. Friends call him Chaz Nuttycomb, but I've tracked him down <laughs> even before we got on the air here. Stay tuned on that one, Michaela. It's awesome. Well, thanks for the hat tip, Professor Billet. Always a pleasure. Steve, I was hoping that you could take a second to share for the benefit of our audience of practitioners what your personal experience has been and what you think it remains today about the power of face-to-face -face interactions. 
both when it comes to fundraising and as you've already spoken about meeting candidates? I have to say I had advantages when I worked at AT&T because I was a, we were AT&T and we were the largest corporate pack in America at the time. People sought us out. You know, but one of the things I did over the years, and I can remember one of the people I talked to at the time was Bernadette Booty. Bernadette, uh, for those of you who are familiar with her, had a sort of an eclectic set of questions that she used to ask candidates, some of which had to do with what car they drove and what shoes they wore or things like that. But what it did was it put people in a position and put me in a position where you could actually sit and look someone face to face and ask them the question, why are you running? What is it you intend to do? What might you do to, in this my instance, what might you do to the telecommunications industry if we decide to do X, Y, and Z? The point is, is that you get a chance to talk to the candidate. One of the things I used to do too, by the way, is that I always insisted that I meet with the candidate without the campaign manager to make sure that we were dealing with someone and, and I was getting straight answers from them. What we found, what we oftentimes found in those conversations was that some of these candidates really didn't know why they were running. The other thing I think that's worthwhile doing too in this face-to-face business, and this is sort of contrary to what I mentioned about the campaign managers, is that you should be able to go back and examine the effectiveness of campaign managers. You know, so many times we take these folks for granted and simply assume that they're going to come up with an optimal strategy here. But, you know, somebody's got to lose in every campaign. And when you look at the actual record of a lot of campaign managers, some of them don't do so well. And you got to wonder if you want to take the hard-earned cash from your pack and dump it into one of these campaigns when they're really not being well-managed as a campaign. So if you can come up with ways to determine or to make an evaluation of the candidate campaign too, maybe their fundraising capacities too, uh, it's worthwhile. But again, back to your original question, I, I, I always thought that it was valuable to sit across the table from someone, look them in the eye and get them to talk about their campaign to give you a, a rundown of the principal messages that they intend to use and evaluate them. Because sometimes they're not very effective. I wish I had this advice and this podcast 25 years ago when I was starting out, because I will tell you as a young professional interviewing a candidate, I was almost frozen and worried that if I asked the wrong question, would I be offending them or is it too aggressive? And so I really didn't even know what kind of questions to ask early in my career. So I think it's sound advice. And I think coming to those meetings prepared with, you know, a sampling of five to 10 questions that can get the conversation started and to dig in a little bit is perfectly within your rights to do that. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask those questions of the candidates. One of the reasons I think I I found myself in this place, and I'm not quite sure where this came up with, but I've actually used this notion as I've developed presentations on pack management. And it's the idea of stewardship, that pack directors are the steward of someone else's money. And they accordingly have an obligation to look out for that resource, 
with all of their talent, with all of their energy to make certain that we make the best use of that money no matter what. So, you know, if you've got senior executives, I mean, think about this for a second. You've got senior executives that are maxing out to your pack every year. And one of them comes by and says, well, what do you think about these candidates that you've been meeting with? Give me some idea. Under those circumstances, well, you know, I would feel compelled to give a good response to the contributor. I would also feel as though, you know, under these circumstances, you really have to make sure that you're looking out for that resource and that the candidates need to understand this. And oh, by the way, there were times when aggressive questions were not appreciated. So what? <laughs> yeah. I have that perspective now, but then it was hard. I, I can appreciate it. I can appreciate that. Well, Steve, every time we have you on the show, we do ask you whether or not PACs remain relevant. And, and you've been very vocal and honest about that. But I wanted to get your take on a recent action by the Federal Election Commission. They, at the December open meeting, put together their list of legislative recommendations to Congress. And as you know, these recommendations have to be unanimous before they make it into their list of recommendations by all six commissioners. And they they put together uh, recommendations that PACs should be indexed for inflation, both on the amount that they can receive coming in and the amount they can give to candidates going out. And I have my views on it. And I think this was an incredibly important step for the multi-candidate PAC community in sort of achieving some level of parity as we face inflation. I mean, as you know, the limits that we've been able to raise and give have never changed since the 1970s. The same 5,000 we can receive and the same 5,000 we can give per candidate per election has, has never changed. And so in light of this, what does that say, in your opinion, about the future of PACs? Well, obviously, it's a fabulous development as far as I'm concerned. PACs are the collective voice of organizations and interest groups, a reflection of the way we do politics in America. And under the circumstances, it puts PACs in a place where they may be able to compete more effectively. You know, with the growth, in addition of these enormous independent expenditure contributions that are coming from all these wealthy individuals, I think it promises the possibility that PACs may regain some of the ground that they've lost over the years. So, you know, I can't tell you how much I, I would appreciate this kind of change. Uh, now, we would see what the Congress would do with this later on. But, you know, obviously a positive development. Yeah. And that's an important point that it's just a recommendation. And we still have a lot of work ahead of us to get something like that across Congress. But Professor Stephen Billet, as always, thank you for joining us once again on the Facts About PACs podcast. Always a pleasure. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing the show. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week on the Facts About PACs podcast. <laughs>